0: Let's get back to the good things. It's the advertising campaign that VCOS, the Victorian Council of Social Service, has created off their own bat. Emma King is VCOS CEO. And Emma, I didn't know that VCOS was a sort of an advertising company. Tell us about your ad. Oh, good morning. And thank you for having me. Well,
2: We're not an advertising company, but we (laughs) we don't love the ads that are out there. And um, I guess getting vaccinated isn't just about not catching COVID, as crucial as that is. It is about reclaiming our old lives, you know, the things we once took for granted, whether it's meeting your grandkids, hugging your mum, catching up with friends. So we are focused on getting back to the good things, and we thought, well, no one else is doing this, so we're going to. Um, And so our ad doesn't tell people how to get vaccinated it reminds them why they would want to. So it's not offering medical advice, it's a glimpse into a better future, and it's real people. It's real people in our ad that we know who have been impacted, obviously, as we all have by the virus, talking about you know, what
1: they're hoping for. And can you tell us a bit about uh, who you cast in the ad and, and I guess um, yeah. know, what sorts of people you look to include as part of this sort of alternative ad campaign?
2: Well, we, and when I say we, I I don't want to take credit for the brilliance of others on our team. So for many people that came in, including Zoe Daniel from ABC, who just did an incredible job of stepping in and um, helping in terms of pulling this together. But really, we put out a call um, to ask people what they were looking forward to. And it was interesting when people came back to talk about what they were looking forward to. We then... um, ask people to, if they wouldn't mind being in the ad, a couple of our own staff at VCOS who've got their own stories to tell. So it's real people talking about what their hopes are.
0: I think we should play it and then keep talking to um, Emma, Emma King's um, CEO of VCOS and um, it's an open access um, advertising campaign that you've put together and um, here it is. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us.
3: I really want to see my mum.
0: I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on.
4: To having all the sports back to normal so that my
0: family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated.
3: Let's get back to the good things.
0: I ask you to get vaccinated.
1: For all of us. Please get vaccinated. And that's the audio version of the ad. There is, of course, Vision, um, and you can catch that online at Vcos's website. But um, people sort of have a taste of that now, Emma, and I don't want to get sort of too negative. But what was it about those other ads that were out there that the federal government put out that um, I guess you saw as flawed and wanted to rectify in some way with um, the ad that you've produced?
2: I... Personally, didn't think a lot of the ads resonated um, in terms of looking at, and and not to take away from the role of um, people who have been chief medical officers, et cetera, but thinking about my kids as they watch them who are going, I don't know who that bloke is. That doesn't kind of convince me, and also the fact that at 15 and 18, they have a level of frustration they can't get vaccinated themselves. Mm. But we we wanted to focus on, I guess, what I felt was missing, and then looking at the most recent federal ad, which personally, I, I just Um, I don't like and so we were thinking rather than get out and kind of throw stones let's do what we would like to see and I think there is something there when I saw the first cut of the ad and we, we actually edited a bit because some people were actually a little bit more emotional but weren't, were a little bit uncomfortable in, in showing that. And given that everyone who's in the ad volunteered their time, they didn't charge. We, we are making this ad, as you mentioned, it's freely accessible. We've waived copyright. Um, people can use it as they want. We thought, let's make an ad that we would want to see. Um, we want to see an ad that's about hope. We want to see an ad that's actually about getting back to, the things that we're we're just desperate to get back to, that we think resonates with people. And I actually felt really emotional when I saw the first cut of the ad. It really, um, it brought, it almost was this thing of bringing to the surface a whole lot of things that are sitting there that you're almost kind of trying to push on and deal with in everyday life, but it it just, you stop for a minute and go, yeah, I want all those things back. Um, And and it's, everyone in the ad, as I said, has volunteered their time. And has been incredibly generous, I think, in, in putting themselves out there and sharing a little bit of their story.
0: And so how did you develop the messages? Because I know that, you know, in the release of the Australian government uh, ads, mm. uh, you know, we saw a lot of clips, all those, you know, um, watching assessment of them saw a lot of clips from around the world of the different style of, of, of ads being used to motivate people to either stay distant or to get vaccinated. Mm. Did you draw messages from those from elsewhere as well?
2: I think what we did, and, and again when I say this, we, I mean it in a very collective term, this is about the VCOS team and it was also, I'd have to say around Zoe Daniel stepping in and as she well And she's <laughs>
0: former foreign correspondent for the ABC Yeah, like really, how
2: generous when um, our head of comms, Ryan she put out a message on his Facebook saying, what is it that people are looking forward to? Because we wanted to focus on a positive and it was interesting looking at the number of messages that came back in about, well this is what I'm looking forward to and you know, so that's where we came up with a let's get back to the good things because we thought there's so much there that's about pictures of people getting needles in their arms and those sorts of things that's not our expertise and I do want everyone to get vaccinated but I want to focus on hope Um, and I think there's that great sense of loss that we all have at the moment about what are we missing out on and let's kind of let air a bit and talk about, what are we missing out on? And it's a pretty good reason about the why to get vaccinated.
1: Yeah, I mean, we've seen, you know, so many people doing it tough throughout the pandemic um, in in Victoria, of course, you know, Australia-wide mm. and, and worldwide, but, uh, I mean, it strikes me as really interesting that you've sort of gone into the ad space and sort of picking up, um, you know, from where the government has, has essentially not really risen to the challenge of, of creating an ad that has resonated with people, I think it's fair to say, but is this reflective of sort sort of broader things you're finding you're having to do to really, um, you know, go the extra mile, I suppose, to support people given the nature of the sort of disadvantage and um, and negative yeah. experiences and challenges people are facing throughout Victoria at the moment?
2: Uh, without doubt. And I would say that at VCOF, I feel like we've done a number of things that are a bit different around how we get cut through for... Um, our member organisations and those who are in in particularly disadvantaged situations. And I think one of the things about COVID is, you know, we've heard it probably said lots of times, is that everyone is impacted by this vaccine, but it's like different boats in the same storm. So, you know, people are impacted to varying degrees. So whether that's looking at all of the kids who are doing homeschool today and this week um, by virtue of um, being in a lockdown, but knowing the circumstances, people are in a very different, looking at the issues around um, mental health. And we have definitely seen a greater level of empathy, I would say, across the broader situation for people who are in poverty and disadvantage because of I think for, an well, my read on it would be for a number of people perhaps thought that it would never be them. And they found that through no fault of their own, for, for many people, it is. Um, and I think it's highlighted a number of the issues that, um, you know, many of which pre-existed before the pandemic around issues of, you know, homelessness and um, having enough money to put food on the table. But we're seeing that elevated at the moment as well.
0: I mean, is it, is it, clearer in this lockdown number five or is it clear at all what the kind of support landscape is for people Emma because I I imagine you know I I mean I I suppose I hear the messages coming out of other parts of the Mm. country and it feels like a dog's breakfast of how much you can get and who can apply and how you apply and is it federal is it like is it clear enough for people how to get support or get the support that's available to them?
2: Unfortunately, no. I don't think it is clear enough, and I think your description of being a dog's breakfast is a pretty good one. Unfortunately, um, and I think that's where you know, being mindful of things. You know, we're in a pandemic. We know that things change. We did have a good moment in a way last year in terms of job seeker job keeper and the COVID supplements, where we saw people able to get assistance for the first time. But when we saw the last lockdown in Victoria. And the failure, and it is an abject failure of the federal government to step up. They only stepped up to some degree under significant duress. But the caveats they put around the support payments meant that almost no one could access them and we're now really worried about the welfare of more than you know 800,000 people who are low-income people at risk of financial hardship in lockdown areas in Sydney and Victoria and especially those registered for Centrelink for social security payments who can't access a disaster payment and have no income support at all and I know last time um, ABC shared with us a story of someone who was getting I think $43 a day through income support already on very low income but lost. You know, lost hours because of um, the lockdown, they weren't eligible for a single dollar um, as a consequence of the fact that they already received um, some assistance through Social Security. So we're seeing impact. It's a desperate impact, and it is a very gendered impact, actually, but the impact on women is really um,
1: significant. We're speaking with Emma King, the CEO of the Victorian Council of Social Services, and we're talking about an open access um, video ad they've put out to encourage um, people to take, uh, take the vaccine in Victoria. Um, it's doing the rounds as of this morning. And I guess we've seen you know, sort of immediate responses throughout this pandemic. You mentioned the coronavirus supplement and, and JobKeeper as well to deal with sort of you know, the immediate challenges um, as the, the pandemic really took hold in Australia. But What's your sense of how the governments and governments are dealing with the kind of cumulative effect of lockdown? Because I know it sort of hits people quite hard when they're, um, you know, suddenly thrown into lockdown again and they've lost work and so on. And and there's broader challenges that come from that in terms of losing work and losing connections with others. But we kind of seem to have this policy response that sort of bumbles along and is a little bit piecemeal. Do you feel at all optimistic that there's kind of planning for the long term, given the effect this is, you know, going to have on people for some time yet?
2: I would answer that in two different ways and I don't mean to come at this in a partisan way, but I don't see that at a federal level. Um, as I mentioned before, I saw things stepped up very quickly and to government's credit, while there were certainly um, groups that missed out that shouldn't have, we saw a choice being made and the choice being made was actually to lift people out of poverty and work to keep them safe during a pandemic. And on a state level, I think because states are often closer to the ground, for want of a better term, we've certainly seen some areas where there were mistakes made but we fundamentally, not always, but saw them acknowledged but we saw that support coming in through states state government trying to perhaps step into the gap Um, and I'm fully aware there were issues there for example in terms of the lockdown of public housing estates in Flemington and North Melbourne which were um, less than ideal to put it mildly but at the same time I acknowledge that they were focused on saving lives. So I think as well it's more pointed in Victoria because you know this is our lockdown number five. We had very long lockdowns last year so my sense is that we're probably better placed um, than perhaps other states and territories
0: who've not really not been in this situation before. And um, just to, before we let you go, um, you have the the ad, the um, Back to the Good Things ad up on YouTube, and um, people can share it as far as I understand, and people can play it. I, are you hoping to get support from you know television stations and the like um, to give it an airing?
2: Look, that would be amazing. I think that the thing is we've put it out that we want it as far and wide as possible. We have got it captioned in nine different languages as well. So we're keen to get it out into as many communities as we possibly can. It would be amazing if TV picked it up. I mean, basically, it's a free ad. We've done the work. It's ready to go. So whoever
0: wants to use it can. Good on you, Emma. Um, thanks for being with us on Triple R. Thank you so much. And congrats to day. your team as well. Um, Emma King there uh, at VCOS. Uh, she's a CEO. And uh, you can head to their website. That's where I went um, to check out the ad. It's called uh, Back to the Good Things. And, uh, yeah, they're doing a pretty good job. Triple
2: R on FM, digital, online and via the app.
1: Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. In recent federal elections, we've seen independent candidates successfully win seats back from major parties off the back of strong grassroots campaigns. Think Cathy McGowan and Helen Haynes in Indi and Zali Stegall taking former Prime Minister Tony, Tony Abbott's seat of Warringah. A new group in the Victorian electorate of Kuyong is hoping to continue that tradition. They're called Voices of Kuyong, and their aim is to galvanise the community around issues of common interest and bring about better political representation. And this comes amid political Tensions between uh, the elected MP for Qiyong, uh Treasurer Josh Friedenberg, and the Victorian government. To talk more about this group and its aims, we're joined by one of the founders of Voices of Cooroy, Guy Morton. Guy, thanks for coming on Triple R this morning. No worries, my pleasure. And so, tell us uh, how and when your group came about.
3: Well, we really um, came about sort of late last year. Um, we're just, you know, a number of us, I guess, have just been noticing over the years, like we've lived here for a long time. Personally, I've been here for two decades. And through that time, we've seen, you know, a real change in the way our... Uh, local representatives represent us. When we first moved here, we had Petro Giorgio, who defied the Howard um, Offshore Processing um, legislation by crossing the floor. So, you know, he was really uh, sort of in tune, I guess, with some of that smaller liberal um, feeling that's that's in this area. Um, And since um, Josh Frydenberg sort of took over, there's been a a decreasing, uh, I guess, recognition that, that this area is not just a sort of died in the wall rusted on liberal you know we only vote liberal and don't think kind of area that there is actually a, a strong thread of, of thinking people here who actually have compassion for others and have an interest in things like climate change and have an interest in things like asylum policy um and you know we feel like what we're getting as a representative is someone who's essentially just a throwback to the thatcher and reagan years who's uh, You know, spouting neoliberal policy and just doing, you know, what his party says. You know, Josh Rodenberg is voted 100% of the time the exact same way as Craig Kelly. Um, So, you know, would we be happy to have Craig Kelly representing us? No. But, you know, do we think Josh is any different? Well, functionally, he's absolutely no different to Craig Kelly.
0: I mean, I'm interested in the kinds of issues that um, Voices of Kuyong feel aren't being addressed. And you actually um, named a couple there: climate and asylum policy. Are, are there, are they the big the, the bigger issues, or are they particular issues also for the the electorate of Kuyong that um, yeah. Voices of Kuyong think are, aren't being looked at or aren't being represented, um, are, aren't being taken to Canberra um, to represent you? Yeah. Look, I think
3: uh, you know, climate change policy. Treatment of asylum seekers; they, these are long-running issues. They've been, you know, brewing in the in the electorate here and and just across the whole country. I think um, for for you know twenty years or thereabouts. Um, so I think those are the long-running issues. But there's there's a lot of other things too. So I think what we've seen, and I think where people in Kuyong are probably getting increasingly frustrated, is they see their Liberal representative increasingly lowering the bar on things like fundamental integrity type issues. You know, the rorting, the sports rorts, the pork and rice, the Chinese signs at the last election that were designed to look like AEC signs to fool Chinese people into voting for 21 Liberal, Um, the Client Palmer press preference swap that happened in the 21 to 2019 election, Um, just the general lack of transparency, avoidance of accountability... You know, it's really those sorts of things are really bothering us because they're, you know, those things corrupt corrupt democracy. Um, You know, they they are just the sort of the constant drip 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 of that sort of lack of integrity really flows through into the sorts of situations where you have people like you know Christian Porter not having to face any kind of inquiry, you know, for for being you know an alleged rapist because you know people. Defend him, um, and Josh Frydenberg was one of the people who went on, on you know, mainstream uh, TV to say he didn't think that there should be an inquiry into Christian Porter's um, the rape allegations. Um, yeah. So those sorts of things are really lowering the bar. We feel. Um, so that's, that's also a big source
1: of concern. It's, it's interesting, um, as you did earlier, to remind us about Petro Giorgio's, uh, Giorgio's long um, history, I suppose, in that electorate. And, and you know, I'm imagining that, that people, um, you know, felt that he represented their interest in Kuyong, even though they might have not been happy with some of the federal government policies in relation to asylum seekers and that sort of thing. But I'm wondering whether mm. you think at all whether the, the, the Liberal, uh, Liberal Party has kind of taken some of the, the inner, you know, inner eastern suburb seats in, in Melbourne for granted without necessarily, you know, thinking about whether the MP, in this case, Josh Frydenberg, uh, legitimately reflects and, and represents the interests of those people in that area, given, you know, that the long history of, of Petro Giorgio before him?
3: Yeah, look, I think there's definitely a big element of, of being taken for granted. I mean, you know, and I think one of the things to to to, to note here is, you know, that, Josh Rodenberg was was a key um, sort of agitator in helping Tim Smith get the state seat, right? So there's a there's a very much I think a born to rule attitude sort under, of underpinning some of this stuff that they think they can kind of get away with whatever they want. Um, and I think um, you know Tim Smith is a good example of that of someone who's really you know brought a new level of toxic politics to 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 um, Victoria. Um, you know, I don't think anyone who lives in Victoria is probably unaware of Tim Smith, you know, Donut Dick, um, you know, doing doing his Twitter outrage um, and the dictator dance stuff and really promoting this idea that lockdowns are bad and, and politicising that all. So, yeah, look, I think it's, I think there's very much an assumption, I think, that's been there that that, that we can be taken for granted. But I think if you look at the last two elections, last two federal elections, you'll see that there's been substantial swings against Josh Frydenberg at each of those elections. The demographic here is changing. Um, So they really do, you know, and the last election, Josh spent, you know, I don't know what the number was, but it was millions of dollars on on billboards and advertising. It was saturation, everything. So I think they are concerned that this is a a losable seat for them. But, um, you know, the way they're approaching that is not to engage with us as a community and say, well, how can I represent you better? Um, The way they're responding to that is, well, we'll just, you know, we'll just ramp up the advertising. We'll send you a bunch more leaflets in the mail and we'll tell you what a great guy Josh is. Um, They're not actually engaging with us. Um, And saying, okay, well, you have concerns, maybe you're not being represented well, what can we do to fix that? Um, and I mean it's, it's I a big deal
0: if, if the um, if kuyong looks like it's um, you know under pressure because as, as far as I'm I understand it's always been held by the Liberal Party since it was created yep. a long time ago um, back in yep. Federation uh, I think yep. Um, yep. I mean uh, we're, we're speaking with guy Morton he's uh, with a group called voices of kuyong and and guy I'd, I'd like to kind of take you to the your, your namesake I guess the voices of Indi group which successfully hey. supported Cathy McGowan and now Helen Haynes to be elected as independent members up there in North northeast Victoria. Uh, I mean, that is a distinct geographic area. And, you know, we've spoken to both of those members actually on this show over over the years. And what was really evident to me anyway, speaking to them is that the community got together, the community found them, the community advises them as their representative and votes and then sends them to Canberra with their messages and they make sure that they're involved. Is this, are you modelling your group on the voices of Indi, but also, you know, can it be replicated in a city area that doesn't really have that same sort of geographic bound? I guess.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Look, it's a really interesting question, and, and we spoke with um Ginnivan, who was involved in that campaign um, and one of the founders of it too, um, about that very, very topic. And I think the thing that the, the thing that can be copied is the idea of um, just engagement with people and asking the questions and asking people what they actually think. You know, because I think the reality is that a lot of people, you know, just as an example, the ABC had a thing called Vote Compass last last election. I pro- hopefully they'll have it again. Um, yeah, the, the 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 thing about that was that you sort of answered a questionnaire about you know what you thought about various policy positions, and then it came out at the end and said, oh, you should be voting for this party. And you know I think that, that the disconnect is that I think a lot of people who have traditionally sort of voted Liberal without really thinking about it too deeply, if they actually thought about it, they would see that, that this party doesn't really represent what they believe in. You know, the smaller. Liberals who, you know, really do, um, you know, believe in the things that they believe in, Um, you know, they don't value a lack of integrity. Like, nobody wants that. Um, They they don't... They they do want climate change addressed. You know, these are fundamental issues that I think people are just not necessarily... um, You know, they're not necessarily taking it... But they're not necessarily thinking about it when when they sort of go through the motions. And I think the the thing that's transferable is just that. Let's have a conversation. Let's 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 ask people the questions. Like, how do you feel about this? Like, do you feel that when Josh comes out onto on on television and 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 criticises Daniel Andrews, like is that okay? Like, do you, how do you feel about that? Do you think that's, that that's his job and that that's a good that he's doing a good thing, or do you actually are you troubled by that? Um, you know, are you troubled by it? park and ride, um, you know,
2: mm.
3: it, it seems like a much transparent routing of the system, right? It's, it's port barrelling. Are you OK with port barrelling? And maybe the answer to that is yes. When people are OK and they're going to keep voting Liberal.
1: It's going to be really interesting to, to see what happens with the next federal election for a whole bunch of reasons. But I'm wondering, um, you know, we obviously don't have a date yet, but what's your kind of plan in the lead up to the next federal election in terms of what your group will do and, and how you might go about, you know, potentially putting up a candidate to represent um, Voices of Kuyong.
3: Yeah. So, look, we're definitely on the lookout for for a candidate. There are various people in the in the involved in the, the group currently who are either you know interested in in that themselves or you know actively you know uh, engaging with other people to see if you know if other people are interested in standing. Um, you know, I think in terms of what our function is, I think our function is to ask the questions and to to cr- you know try and create debate in, in, in the community and discussion in the community, um, you know, where it comes down to, you know, uh, candidates and, you know, do we support somebody or do we um, sort of essentially re- remain neutral, mm. that's that's kind of a, a little bit of a unknown at the moment because, you know, um, at the end of the day, we do want to see someone who's prepared to represent our views more more accurately. Uh, we do want that person to be in the seat of Kooyong. So, you know, we, we will be doing, I guess, what we can do to make that happen. And as I say, part of that is around having these sorts of conversations, raising the issues, asking the questions, how people feel, and giving people an opportunity to, to, to think about stuff like, you know, are we happy that Josh Frydenberg brought out a job keeper policy that allowed, you know, Harvey Norman to keep millions of dollars in profits? Like, do we, are we actually, do we actually think that's good? Like, is that what we want? Or do we actually want to do something different? Do we want something different? Do we want someone who can, would stand up in, in, in federal parliament and say, no, that's not right? They shouldn't be doing that. Let's
0: let's fix the law. You know, and Guy. Um, um, I mean, it, it, you do have a lot of questions to ask, and um, right. you've asked a lot of them this morning. And I, I think you know, I, I'm personally a huge um, supporter of representative democracy working well, and 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 for civic discourse to be healthy, and that more and more people participate. Like that's, you know, part of what puts me, you know, t- makes me turn up on Triple R every every Monday morning. Um, and I, I guess as an antidote to cynicism um, where people sort of throw their hands up and go, ah, they're all like that, which I, I yeah. think is quite tempting. So, I mean, how big is your group now? Um, how, how, is it, how do you see it evolving?
3: Yeah, so we've got um, there's probably a core team of about 20 people who are sort of actively involved in organising, and then we have a volunteer group and a membership group that's in the hundreds beyond that. Um, and, you know, we're getting more people coming all the time. Um, you know, a, a tweet will trigger a bunch of people joining. You know, something happens in the media and a bunch of people will join. So, you know, it's growing all the time. I think it's, you know, it, our timing is good, looking for a, an election in, in early um, next year. Um I think, you know, had we been kind of had to face with a sort of an election in the next couple of months, we would have probably not been reading. But I think as luck would have it, with the vaccine rollout being a disaster, uh, the federal government has done us a favour, um, then
1: probably not going to go to an election that's... until early...
0: Well, we year, don't want and, the disaster. <laughs>
1: no, no, no. But you've got to look I mean, for silver linings in these times, don't you? Abso- absolutely. absolutely. Anyway, way absolutely. they come.
3: I mean, that's exactly right. I mean, I think you know this this government the, the the federal government has 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 skated through and you know they had they had the miracle win last last time and i think you know we 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 at least don't want that to happen again and to skate through just just, pure, just through pure luck you know yeah well it's been um, it's, it's
1: been great um having you on this morning um well done on on making the group happen um and best of luck with everything into the future thanks so much for joining us on triple r my pleasure thanks Guy Morton, there, one of the founders of Voices of Yong, um, a group that's formed sort of late last year and, and appears to be growing, uh, sort of rallying community support for doing politics, doing democracy differently in that particular electorate.
3: You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform.
0: I'm going to start with a quote from Theodore L's essay. Economic collapse is the pain of glass you don't notice until you walk into it. As you lie on the floor among the shards, the warning signs you had ignored return unbidden as memories. It's a line from his essay called Facades of Lebanon. It's been published in the latest Australian Book Review and um, has won an award actually and uh, Theodore L was living in Beirut in Lebanon from 2018 to 2021. Uh, The country in that time has really become a failed state uh, across those three years when Theodore was living there. It it experienced political revolution, the pandemic and an extraordinary extraordinary explosion which destroyed its major port and surrounding areas. Uh, Theodore, it's great to have you on Triple R and congrats. Oh,
4: thank you very much.
0: And I I guess, I mean, it's yeah, no worries. Um, I mean, what what took you to Lebanon in 2018? I can't imagine that you would have had any idea what's, what was about to happen in the three years that you were there.
4: None at all, no. I uh, I went to Lebanon accompanying my wife on a, a diplomatic posting, a DFAT posting. Um, so she was uh, our Australian Deputy Ambassador and I was more or less Chief Cook and bottle washer. Um, and... Uh, uh, we, 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 st- we set up uh, there in late 2018 when Lebanon was, was still riding fairly high. It, was, uh, it, it, it had been reconstructing itself steadily for getting on for 30 years since the end of the Civil War. And although it had many deep problems and uh, a great deal of strife still going on, there was still a sense of some uh, buoyancy and optimism in the air. Um, and it was a wonderful place to begin exploring and to set up a, a, a new life which we were expecting to live for at least three years probably between three and a half and four We thought, Um and so that was in the end of 2018 and then uh, by uh, the middle of 2019 getting on for the, the last third of the year it it was all beginning to go off a cliff. And um, it's, it's quite difficult to explain quite what happened because it was so incredibly complex. But what the, the case was more or less that the country was so heavily in debt uh, that it, it, it was beyond anything it could repay. And um, suddenly all the debts started to be called in and nobody could repay anything. And uh, it just showed how terribly fragile that kind of financial and political arrangement can be, um, because with, with nobody able to repay anybody else, um, the pretense of civility and the and the the, the post civil war setup just unraveled within a matter of weeks. And-
1: um, Sorry to jump in, Theodore. And, and I mean, in your essay, you, you, you talk or you write about people that you came to know, such as, you know, people who worked at a bar on someone talking about getting out of the country. So, so was there a sense from, from people who, who lived in Beirut and were from there that, you know, they were sort of eager to leave based on that economic situation and the real hardship that was resulting um, from that?
4: Very much so. Very much so. I suspect that that uh, sense of wanting to get out and avoid some sort of catastrophe had been probably looming even before we got there. Um, uh, But once again, these are the things that creep up and make themselves evident uh, without you quite realising it. Uh, I suppose if... If one were to go back and look at emigration uh, statistics, they probably were climbing throughout 2019. But uh, from the second half of 2019 into early 2020, with the pandemic and lockdowns compounding everything, yes, there was a sense among people of uh, wanting to get out. And emigration is uh, is a I, funnily enough, it's, it's a deeply embedded part of the Lebanese psyche, because Lebanon throughout its history has uh, had this enormous diaspora of uh, getting on for more than a century. There have been times in which waves and waves of Lebanese people have uh, decided to leave and find a new life overseas. Funnily um, enough, there are more Lib- people of Lebanese heritage in, Bra- in Brazil than there are in Lebanon. And uh, not to mention Australia and uh europe and the united states so um this instinct to uh seek a better life abroad is is very much a part of the lebanese psyche and it suddenly boiled right up to the surface um in late 29 early 2020 um i should stress that the 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 person i quote who worked in the bar, Alias. she, She does exist and I did know her, but Mira is not her real name. Um, I I don't put people's names in it, unless i unless I've got their explicit permission.
0: Well, you but, didn't put your um, cat's name in either, <laughs> and I was like, "What's no, the cat's name?" Yeah, um, the
4: cat. The cat's name is Jasmine.
0: Okay, Jasmine uh, gave Jazzy, their
1: permission. Yeah, <laughs> to be identified. Yeah,
4: Jazzy. Uh, Jazzy uh, is now in Greece, of all places, because she. We are. We are going to bring her here. But she has to tra- travel via a third country to uh, have uh, proper vaccination checks, and uh, I mean she's been fully vaccinated and everything in Lebanon, but there are, there's no bilateral agreement, so she's in Greece having all these tests done.
0: Well, you've um, gone through a lot with 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 Jazzy, and I don't want to yeah. jump too too far ahead in our in our story, though. Um, I mean, so when when you uh, when you arrived, as you say, it was, you know, felt like it was ri- riding high in Lebanon. And then, um, you know, I read out that quote at, at the beginning of our conversation about economic collapse being like a pane of glass you don't notice until you walk into it. And then mm. the revolution happened. Um, I mean, what, you, you could hear it um, from from your home, couldn't you? Um, the, the, what, yeah. what happened on the streets. I mean, tell us a little bit about that and then kind of how it, how it dissipated.
4: Right. Well, the revolution um, exploded almost out of nowhere in October 2019. Um, In August and September that year, there'd been, well, rumblings of political discontent and there had been a very strong warning sign that the economy was going to tank. But um, Lebanon being such a or how to describe it, fragile, volatile society prone to violent outbursts and mass demonstrations. I mean, there'd been a garbage strike a year or two before. Um, There there was really no sign that it was going to be a full-blown national revolution until suddenly um, in mid-October... Uh, all these uh, thousands and thousands of people start, spontaneously started setting up roadblocks in their neighbourhoods in Beirut and up and down the country in other cities like Tripoli and uh, Batroun and Biblos, Suddenly, uh, it was everyone was up in arms, and c- quite clearly, the, the trigger for it was when the government announced as a revenue raising measure, it was going to it was planning to tax WhatsApp messages. How they expected to do that, I don't know. But uh, they announced that they were going to tax uh, WhatsApp messages by something like 5 or 10 US cents per message. And this was the last straw, because everyone in Lebanon communicates via WhatsApp and it's well notionally free. And so suddenly thousands of people were setting up roadblocks and setting tyres on fire and marching and demonstrating, because this was the final straw. They, they, they felt that the government was cracking down on every last little bit of freedom they had from this mafia state that exists. And so um, because we in the because we were in this little embassy community and my wife, as deputy ambassador, was in charge of uh, sort of security for, for our little community and keeping everyone safe. We, we suddenly got these messages from, uh, from the embassy uh, the WhatsApp group that we had saying, stay indoors, don't go out, everybody go home, please report your whereabouts to us and let us know that you're safe. Um, and oh, this is a big shock, really. And then the next thing, so I, I did this, and uh, the next thing we knew was that uh, in Jemaisy Street, which was one block from our apartment building, um, hundreds of people were marching down that street, waving banners, waving flags, chanting and singing slogans. And uh, so switch on the news, and you realise that Thousands, hundreds of thousands of people were marching through the main streets of Beirut and converging on Martyrs Square, which is less than a kilometre away from our house. And throughout this one day, I think it was October the 17th, 2019, you heard this sound of what sounded like a crowd in a stadium like the NCG. Um, And it was close to a million people by the end of the day, raising their voices, chanting as one. And throughout October and November, uh, Martyr Square transformed into this gigantic um, arena of popular discontent and, and dissent. And what was, uh, what was remarkable about it, quite apart from the size, was the fact that, first of all, uh, it was non-sectarian or pan-sectarian. Le- Lebanon is a deeply divided country along religious lines. But um, Shia and Sunni and Christian uh, people and Druze were protesting alongside one another uh, waving the Lebanese flag, this this one symbol of unity, which is exceptionally rare. The the other extraordinary thing about it was that it was pan generational. Um, uh, elderly people were there, uh, leading their grandchildren, and uh, the, the the vast, but the vast majority of people were were young, sort of between the uh, relatively young, sort of between the late teens and the forties, I suppose. People of all ages came out. And uh, they just camped out in the square um, and branched out and blocked off certain arterial roads at various points. Um, but it w- but it went on for weeks. Uh, it was just staggering. And it was as if... Well, you see, Lebanon didn't really have an Arab Spring 10 years ago. Um, it, the Arab Spring seemed to pass Lebanon by. And it was as if this rage, this energy, this demand for a better life and a better system of government had been bottled up for that decade, and it finally burst out. Um, the other thing about it was that the, the, the revolution was, uh, well, it went on, it was 24-7. And as, as night fell every night, DJs would start up um and it, it turned into a it turned into a rave almost well yes. i mean look, the
0: people i know that have have lived and worked and and have family from lebanon just speak about it just being such a, a an incredible place wonderful people dynamic yes. creative all of these um stories and and yet um yeah that um, incredible hope i guess that that would have yes. come from those from those um protests and from that
4: yes
1: yeah
0: that's...
4: it was Hopeful and optimistic.
1: It's an incredibly vivid snapshot to have as kind of in our minds, uh, you know, leading up to August 2020 of of all the things that were kind Mm. of going on in Beirut at the time. I wonder, you know, if you feel comfortable describing just sort of, you know, where you were and and what it was like for you um, when that incredible blast happened.
4: Yes, uh, well, I, I can talk about it. It's all right. I would just say that uh, the, the, the sad thing was that by August 2020, the, that revolution had been stamped out. Mm. Um, the, the thing is that it's true that Lebanon is full of marvellous people. We, we, we've got to, certainly got to know wonderful people, and they are creative, and they are energetic, and they, they, they love life. But the political system is this... Um, cartel of various sectarian mafias and they succeeded in violently repressing that revolution so that by august 2020 the, the country was had been more or less beaten and strangled into submission uh, but nobody could have foreseen what happened on august the 4th um, there'd been long lockdowns uh, the country was as as weary as as anywhere, as Melbourne even, of, of lockdowns. And the new one was about to begin that very evening because COVID had got out of control. Um, and where was I? I was at home. I'd spent most of last year at home um, writing and working in our apartment. And uh, it was about six o'clock in the evening. Um, my wife just got home from the embassy where she'd been... She ended, She'd been flat out preparing everybody for another lockdown, and uh, we were just chatting at the end of the day. She just got in when, um, in the in the middle distance, we heard this extraordinary noise. I, I can't describe it, other than it was sort of a, a mixture of a, a, a loud bang and a sort of crackle. Um, and we we looked at each other and we, we, we felt these tremors in the, in the in the fabric of our building. With, That was a that was an explosion. Something blew up, and uh, we were in our bedroom at that moment. And my wife, uh, because she's in charge of all of these, reporting on all these sorts of things and coordinating embassy responses, uh, thought I left my phone in the kitchen. So we walked across this long uh, living and dining room that we had down the middle of our house, um, with big windows facing the port and the sea into the kitchen to collect her phone and start investigating whatever that noise was and just as she got into the kitchen and picked up her phone and i was in the middle of a stride i was in mid stride crossing the kitchen threshold there was an almighty shaking uh, of the building the floor bounced under our feet we're well, on the 6th floor of this modern building and the whole building rocks and uh, as we know now, that was the the exact moment of the great blast to whatever we'd heard before was the sort of, said it must have been a set of oil drums or something exploding. And um, this the building rocked and my wife looked at me in terror and shouted at me, get down, get out, I'll never forget it. And then in the, in the next split second, it was as if the building had been hit by a hit by a tidal wave or a train or a hurricane because um, it was as if a shadow flew at the building and then these great windows that faced the port caved in and and this jet almost of of compressed air and debris crashed through the entire apartment. Um, As I said, the uh, uh, living and dining room was very long and narrow and it was as if uh, an express train had crashed and charged into a tunnel, and um, I was one step away from being right in its path. Uh, if I had been a single step further behind my wife, I would have been uh, uh, hit by what by this blast wave and blown away down the house. Uh, as luck would have it, I wasn't. I was a step ahead, but I was Banged up against the kitchen cupboards and held there in this rushing blast wave, and my wife uh, sort of uh, squeezed herself in between the kitchen door and the cupboard. Uh, and at this point, it, it felt like it was going on forever. It only lasted a few seconds, but it it stretched itself out and. Um, I can see it in my mind's eye right now. It felt like an eternity with the whole building roaring and crashing around us as if we were. And I I remember having the chance to think, this is it, where there's been a bombing of some kind, there's a war starting, and the building's going to collapse and we're going to fall with it, and this is it. But then there was this um, sudden pause, and then there was a, a blast the other way. There was this backdraft because the blast wave had created a vacuum, which the air had to fill, and that did a lot of real damage because it was like a hurricane. You know, everything that's been blown about one way is suddenly ripped and torn apart the other way, and uh, then finally we were released, and there was just nothing but um, dust and paint dust and uh, torn paper and acrid smoke um, falling around us and we we groped towards each other in this fog of... God knows what. It's just an extraordinary
0: story, Theodore. Theodore Al's with us. He's a Canberra writer and uh, he's um, retelling and his experiences being in an apartment uh, when the Port Harbour explosion happened in Beirut uh, almost a year ago now. And and, and we know, I mean, look, people would have seen the video footage that many um, people in Beirut actually filmed on their phones uh, and... You know, we know now it was 3,000 tonnes of ammonium nitrate um, coming together with uh, firecrackers and other explosives to create that absolute um, unbelievable situation. I wonder, Theodore, your thoughts, and just we've only got a few minutes left now, um, your thoughts on why it is that globally the focus on Lebanon isn't, as strong as it could be considering that it is, you know, geographically, like it's just, a, it's an important country, um, as, as all countries are, I guess, but it is important geographically, um, culturally, uh, in, and now we're seeing it slip into failed state status. Um, why is the, the world not paying more attention? Do you think?
4: That's a very difficult question to answer. Um, the, 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 fa- the fact is that uh, there's a difference between Lebanon as, as a people, as a, as a polity, and the political class that governs it. And uh, one of the, 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 the great impasses to all of this is the fact that governments around the world won't lend money or send aid for reconstruction while the current Lebanese government exists. Um, because it's so terribly corrupt. Um, but that is, um, it's a catch-22. Because then, if you don't send aid while this government's in office, then the Lebanese people themselves.
0: Uh, and just, millions of uh, Syrian refugees and others too living there. Uh,
4: Palestinians, mm-hmm. yes. Uh, uh, a couple of mi- about two million Syrian refugees, and at least half a million Palestinians, and about six million Lebanese people will uh, th- th- their suffering will just go ever deeper, and that's the tragedy of Lebanon. Whenever you think it couldn't possibly get any worse, now it does. Um, why? Uh, why is the international community not more focused on it? I, I think, sadly, it's also because. The pandemic has sapped a lot of um, sapped a lot of airtime, if you will. I think uh, certainly in Australia we've turned inwards um, and we're focusing very much. I mean, it's not to, that's not to diminish the suffering and the difficulties that the pandemic has caused, but uh, we we're not uh, we've not taken the opportunity to. Uh, to become to, to, to expand solidarity with communities abroad that are suffering more than ours and uh, I think that I don't understand what has to happen to Lebanon to convince the international community that uh, help really mm-hmm. is needed um, because it, as if the largest peacetime non-nuclear explosion in history weren't enough.
1: Yeah, um, have you on a personal level? Have you managed to to stay connected with many people over there, Theodore?
4: Um, only a couple, only a couple, and uh, is, suddenly enough, the connection is via this particular bar and cafe, mm. Alias. Um, because that was such a haven for people of all kinds. I uh, still am in touch with a couple of people I knew through, through that, uh, that place. Um, we still have uh, our friends and my wife's former colleagues, or some of them in the little embassy community that we had, um, but a lot of the expats I knew have, have left. So it's uh, a much diminished uh, community. Um, well,
0: thank you so much. We, we, we need to leave it there, but thank you so much, Theodore, yep. for sharing um, well your essay with us. Uh, and, con- and congratulations of being the um, the winner of the 15th Calibre Essay Prize. Um, uh-huh. it's, thank you. I'm glad there's an essay prize out there because it, um, it really does bring to attention um, uh, essays like yours. Um, absolutely um, recommend the read. It's, uh, it's in the July edition of... Of Australian Book Review if you want to read more about um, Theo's um, reflections really uh, on Lebanon. Thanks, Theodore.
4: Thank you very much.
0: Theodore L there and the article is called Facades of Lebanon.
1: Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday.
0: Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect hit us up via the Triple R website.